0: That are here today to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 17.6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. God created the, the paternal father relationship as something powerful, special, profound. He designed these relationships to dwell deeply in our soul. Fathers and grandfathers, you have the privileged responsibility to provide such things to your kids and grandkids as guidance, protection, security, affection, unconditional compassion and grace, affirmation, understanding, courage, wisdom, and most importantly, training in godliness. When a child experiences neglect or abuse, or the loss of a father, he or she still longs for acceptance and guidance from a father. And so church fathers, this is where we come in, here in our church family, to provide those things in the fullest that we can for those in need of those things. Now, this is not a Father's Day message today. I wanted to begin with a Father's Day encouragement. However, the path to true manhood goes right through following Jesus Christ as king of our lives. The path to true manhood begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles where we are studying Jesus, the king, and his gospel to Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. If you uh, would like a bulletin with the sermon notes in it, just raise your hand. Ushers will put, you, put one in your hands, as always. We are in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, because, and I've met a few uh, guests today, I just want to say welcome, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, We've been studying the book of Matthew the entire, well, since last year, and uh, we're in chapter 20 now, and we are now reaching the end of Jesus' three years of ministry on earth, a ministry that his father gave him to do on earth. We're reaching the end. The last six weeks, we've been in his last final big discourse, the collection of his final words, on his way, marching to Jerusalem for the last time that he'll go to Jerusalem in his life as a, as a, as a man on earth, the first time. So today, we arrive at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we just had Palm Sunday a couple months ago, and I said, then... We're not going to do a Palm Sunday sermon because it's coming up real soon in our text. That is today. So I have a green shirt on and I have a palm branch here. I am ready for the Palm Sunday message today. All right, and this is good. It's right in order with we've been following Jesus through the entire book of Matthew up until this moment as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we ask, we've been asking today, who is this Christ Jesus who Christians Claim to believe in, be saved by, we claim to follow? Who is this person that, that Christian churches claim to gather and worship and serve and give our lives to? Who is this Jesus? If you were to ask your unbelieving neighbors or people at work or school these questions, what do you think they would say? Do you think they would respond accurately? Who is this Jesus? Do you think they would respond positively? Maybe, maybe not. There is such confusion and lack of knowledge about the real Jesus, even within the church. And because of that, that's our focus today. The message you see is titled, To Know King Jesus and to Make Him Known. And this is what our text today draws out so profoundly. It's our focus today also because when we know the real Jesus, when we really know him, it change, he changes our lives. Knowing Jesus heals us. Knowing Jesus grows us. And then when we make him known, the world around us is introduced to his greatness, his gospel, his salvation, and it heals and grows. And so to know and proclaim Jesus better today, first, Let's come to know Jesus as the King of Eternity. The King of Eternity. Before we get into the Matthew text, let me just paint with a broad brush who this Jesus is in an eternal perspective. We come to know Jesus as the King of Eternity first because if we don't grasp the big picture of who Jesus is with the appropriate awe at who he is, then, then we won't really care that he rode into Jerusalem on his way to die on a cross. And if we don't really care or don't really know, then that truth can't save us. So, come to know Jesus, the King of eternity. For that, I'll begin with John 1, 1 and 14, which says, which proclaims that he was in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus wasn't just a historical figure, he wasn't just a prophet, he is God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead, eternally existing in all of his glory. Thus, he was the creator. Of all time, space, and matter, of everything that exists. He is the creator of everything that that exists. God the Father gave the decree and the Word of God spoke it into existence. This is the Jesus that we know. Listen to Colossians 1, which says this so clearly For by Him, Jesus, all things were created. He is the Word of God that spoke it into existence in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. Wow. Jesus is also the redeemer of all humans. He enacts God's plan for redemption. He was the one promised to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses through David. He was the Messiah spoken of by the prophets who, as they prophesied and predicted, he did come at the perfect time, at the appointed time, the perfect time in history according to God's eternal plan. Galatians 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons of God the Father. And so Jesus is our everything. And knowing Jesus must begin then as as Him is the King of eternity. He is King Jesus. We are following the King. But shall we never stay up there in some other realm and universe? No. Point two we see is come to know Jesus, King, on earth. The eternal Son of God did come to be one of us. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's good news. He came like one of us. He grew up in a normal human experience like the rest of us. Luke 2 says he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with man in his human nature. He took on his father's trade of carpentry, worked a hard living, and then at the the age of 30, it was time for him to begin his earthly ministry. And for three years, he went about doing the ministry that his father gave him, teaching and proclaiming, all the way up into the crucifixion and resurrection During those three years, we've been journeying over all these weeks and months. We've been tracking Jesus, traveling tirelessly, doing everything that the Father had given him to do. He preached the gospel to Israel. He modeled for us how to live and how to make disciples, other followers. He made God further known to us. He performed miracles and signs and wonders to prove the truth of everything he said. And then he, of course, performed the final work of the gospel... Atoning for all humanity's sins on the, on the cross, including yours and mine. His resurrection, rising from the dead, to conquer sin and death itself. In coming to preach the gospel, Jesus came as both the messenger and the message. This is King Jesus on earth. Now, if you're looking at your notes or you'll see on the screen, we're going to develop this King on earth What this text that we have today tells us about Jesus as the king on earth in four points. The first, this is the last week of his first time on earth. He will return to the earth in glory. Let's see what this text teaches us about this Jesus that we worship and that we know four things. Point A, as we enter our text today, Jesus sets up his triumphal entry. And I want you to notice what he does here, how he is the master Watch how Jesus sets up this day that we now call Palm Sunday. This is what we call it now. And it's a great tradition. We love it. Now, you'll miss this point right here in any Palm Sunday message that you'll ever hear that begins in chapter 21. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that the triumphal entry starts in chapter 21. But today we're starting in chapter 20, verse 29. And you'll see the heading in most of your Bibles, Jesus heals two blind men. We're going to start there and you'll see why. Let's read verses 29 through 34. Remember, they're marching close to Jerusalem the last time. He'll be crucified in a week. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men. Okay, so we got great crowd. I want you to visualize this. Great crowd heading towards Jerusalem. And, and on the path here, there are two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Here's what they said. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. See what these two blind men are calling him. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Amazing story. Let's see what was really going on here, what he was doing as king. Jesus had just finished his three years of extensive ministry, and he knows what week this is. He knows that this is the end as he and his many followers are walking toward Jerusalem. And these two blind men, they, they force their way into his attention. They scream out, Son of David. And Jesus stops and listens, and he does something for the first time he's ever done. This is the first time that Jesus has been given the Messianic title, Son of David, and he's allowed it to be said in public. When the blind men cried out, Son of David, everybody knew what that meant. This was a largely Jewish crowd. They knew what that meant. Somebody was calling somebody else son of David. Son of David was the messianic name, the messianic king who had been predicted for centuries. The son of David was the ultimate final king of the world. And Jesus had previously, in in the previous three years, anytime somebody would say something like that, what did he say? He said, don't tell anyone. But this time, for the first time, Somebody calls him that publicly, and he looks at them and says, yes. And now we have a crisis. Jesus publicly accepting, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the deliverer. That means he must now either conquer the Romans and take his kingship right then on earth. He must, because he's just claimed it. Or he must be crushed by the authorities who would be forced to crush him for that claim. The people knew he must either triumph or be destroyed that day. This is it. Everything is happening right now. Just imagine. They were on their way to Jerusalem. He had openly declared himself to be this king. Let me just leave that hang there for a moment. Now let's begin chapter 21. This is the classic Palm Sunday text. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to walk through the first 22 verses with Jesus and those who are there. And we're going to see some of the glories that God reveals behind the scenes that those people on that day could not comprehend. But we can comprehend it now. We see that point B, Jesus' triumphal entry reveals... Four attributes of Jesus the king. Let's look at these four things that are revealed to us today. Number one, Jesus is the divine king. That means he's God. He has divinity. He is God. He is God the king. Verses one through three. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives... just outside the city. Jesus sent, he stopped and sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Jesus begins right now enacting all of the events of Holy Week to follow. And he is in complete control of it all because he's God. He's the divine king. His divine nature, his godly nature, was fully aware of the plan that he, as God, had drawn up in eternity past. And his human nature was fully living it all out right now. And look how, how he shows his divine control of this situation. First, he times, you have to understand what time it is, he he times his entry into Jerusalem when masses of worshipers, that the whole Jewish nation was coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. It was Passover week. So they'll be flooding into Jerusalem and here's this crowd that he timed his entry with this crowd. So that his death on the cross that Friday would be simultaneously would be happening at the same time as every household in the entire city of Jerusalem was cutting and shedding the blood of their Passover lamb. At the same time, he would be dying on the cross, shedding his blood as the final Passover lamb. So the timing is in divine control of it all. Now on the way into the city on that day, he whips up a small frenzy with the blind men. And so all the people are just the, the frenzy and excitement of the crowds is, is just. it's 10 out of 10 right now. Then he divinely ordains where a donkey is going to be. Oh, and it just happens to be in Bethphage right next door to Bethany. Here's a picture of where those villages are on the way to Jerusalem. Now, Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived and where he spent a lot of time over the last three years on his journeys. They kept coming back there. And it's where Lazarus was raised from the dead, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's very well known in these towns. So when the disciples that he sent go get the donkey, and the owner of the donkey might say, what are you doing, untying my donkeys? They would say, the Lord has need of them. And they would know. They let him go. And even more excited people from these two villages would come and join the frenzied party. The Lord needs them. He is claiming and demonstrating that He is the Lord of everything. He is God. He is the divine King. And now we see revealed that Jesus is the prophesied King. Look with me in verses 4 and 5, where Matthew, as he's writing this account to all of us, he ensures that we, his readers, know verse 4 this took place. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to, daughter, to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The prophet Zechariah wrote those words 500 years earlier. People have been watching for this. 500 years earlier, God's people had just come back from the Babylonian exile. Their history was one of repeated failed kings. But Zechariah proclaimed hope, promising that someday God would send his king, who would not be a failed king. And Zechariah 9, nine prophesies exactly the way it would happen. He would arrive humble, mounted on a donkey. And 500 years later, at that exact moment, that donkey was ready for him. You can't make a plan like that unless you're God. He was the prophesied king. The third attribute we see of King Jesus is that he is the king of peace. Verse 5 plainly states this, that he is humble. And this is where it dawns on us then. He's an infinitely powerful king riding on a donkey. The people expected war. And any king in a time of war would be riding on the greatest war horse that there was. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he riding on a donkey? Here's why. Right here with Jesus as usual, we see pictures of the gospel. It was not uncommon for a a king to ride a donkey as a sign of peace in times of peace. And Jesus' gospel is peace. His mission on earth was to make peace for you and me. Peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace with the world. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem later that day, as he was weeping he said if only you knew this day what would bring peace he knew and he could explain what if i did conquer the romans on this day what if i did wouldn't somebody else just capture you later and oppress you you see the parallel in our own lives what if what if jesus does take away these bad circumstances What if he does take away the the illness? What if he does take away the debt? There's just more trouble coming for you next week, next year. If I just free you from the Romans or or from your problems, what are you going to do about your sin? What are you going to do about your guilt? What are you going to do about the deep sense of spiritual emptiness that we have? What are you going to do about facing the wrath of a righteous God at judgment? No, Jesus didn't come to show the strength of temporary war. He came to show the strength of permanent peace. And only in him can we have peace because his gospel is peace. And then finally here in the triumphal entry, the text reveals Jesus as the messianic king. The messianic king, the promised savior of God. Let's read verses 6 through 11. The disciples, the two that he said to go get the donkey, they went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So here we go, towards Jerusalem. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that and that followed him so everybody was shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up just a massive crowd frenzied crowd the whole city is hearing the noise out there and there are a whole a whole city stirred up saying who is this and the crowd's Said, "This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee." So we had people spreading their cloaks on the road. Most people, we say, "What in the mud? What? Why? Why?" Because it was an honor back then, in much of ancient history, for a king to trample your cloak—that was an honor. And so they did that. Others ran out to cut branches from the palm trees because waving. Palm branches was a Jewish national symbol for a victorious king. And when a king is going to win, all the people want to have a part in it, right? Just like our soccer teams and basketball teams and football teams now. We want to have a part in it. The excitement of the Jewish nation that day was probably unlike it had ever been before. They shouted, Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. It's a plea. Oh, save us. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. They clearly identified him as the coming one, the Messiah King, who was, they thought, about to establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. What a day it was going to be. And so they made known to everyone in the city, verse 10 again, the whole city was stirred up. They were so excited that this Jesus, they thought, was going to overthrow the Romans. They told the entire city about him. With passion and zeal, the crowds went to tell everybody the good news about this king who was going to change their temporary circumstances. How much more should we, we know the real truth about the real Jesus, how he came not to just overthrow one army at one time in world history, but to conquer sin and death and hell for eternity, forever, for everyone who believes in him. How much more Zeal should we have to go and proclaim this king to everyone in every city? That's point number three. How much more zeal and passion should we have? And here's the application now make this king Jesus known. So let's follow the text. What's the first thing Matthew records of Jesus' triumphal entry once he enters? The city. I'll read verses 12 through 17. Just listen as I read. And Jesus entered the temple first and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here, Jesus is demonstrating the kind of zeal that we need to have for righteousness, for right things. Entering Jerusalem, they were surrounded by Jews who had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for their annual Passover sacrifices and worship to God. And they would have to purchase an unblemished animal, a lamb or a pigeon, if they couldn't afford a lamb. And they had to buy them there at the temple. And so people were robbing them, taking advantage of them. The money changers were charging exorbitant interest. Historians try to guess, 50% extra interest on them, whatever. They were robbing the people, and they were crowding out any places of prayer. And Jesus saw this, and he was righteously angry. This brings to mind the verse that says, Be angry, yet do not sin. This was Jesus, and we'd be more surprised if he came in and saw all that in the temple and did nothing. And we learn a picture of righteous anger. And so like Jesus, we need to make God's truth known with zeal and stand against evil and lies righteously without sinning. Then we learn from Jesus how to stand strong when people get upset and angry at God's message. Let's see what Jesus did. I'll read verses 14 through 17. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple... And he healed them. Uh, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and they were wonderful, he's proclaiming and doing truth, he's doing right, but they, oh, the opponents saw and they were indignant. The children, of, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were the woke mob of 2,000 years ago. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus went to Scripture. He stood on Scripture, and he stood on truth, and he stood up to the violent mob or the angry accusers. And so we learn to stand strong when people are upset or angry with God's truth. And then verse 17, we read, And leaving them... The time was done, the day was done. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And we're going to see that every day of Holy Week, there's a whole lot of action all day, and he goes out to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house to sleep again with his disciples. That's the end of Palm Sunday's events. Jesus and his disciples go out to where they will sleep each night, this week until he's crucified on a Friday. The entire rest of the book of Matthew, chapters 21 through 28, there's a lot left. It all happens in one week. It's going to take us several weeks, several months, in fact, to go through it all. There's a lot in it. But let's end today with the first thing that happens the next morning, on Monday morning, because it adds to this final point, making King Jesus known, and that is that we need to bear fruit for him. We need to bear fruit. Jesus teaches us this with a fig tree. Verses 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, okay, this is Monday morning. He's going back to the city. There's a whole lot more to come. But on the way, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. A fig tree will only have leaves when there's figs, typically he but he found no fruit everything has meaning here just pay attention he said to it may no fruit ever come from you again and the fig tree withered at once when the disciples saw it they marveled saying how did the fig tree wither at once <laughs> and jesus answered them truly i say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea it will happen Whatever you ask in prayer, you might want to circle those words. In prayer, you will receive if you have faith. All right, so Monday morning, on the way back into the Battle of Holy Week, here's Jesus. He curses the fig tree right in front of everybody. The disciples were a bit confused. They said, what's going on? But if they were viewing that fig tree through the lens of what the Old Testament says... The Old Testament likens the nation of Israel to a fig tree. And Jesus is calling out anybody who would have the appearance of religion, but whose heart was far from being humble before God, and their lives were not bearing fruit for God. And he says... That God's judgment will come on those who appear fruitful but are not. Our mission is to bear fruit for Jesus. And we don't want to be like Israel, to have all the appearances of religion, but inside lacking any real spiritual fruit. We want to do it because we know the real Jesus. Because we love Jesus and want to serve him. To do it for fake reasons, Jesus curses that. He curses that. He doesn't want to hear songs from our lips and then see our hearts totally set on our own self-gratification. We see it too much. We see it too much in the Christian world when there's no need for it because really truly loving and honoring and serving Jesus and bearing fruit for him is so much better than any self-centered, self-gratifying decisions we can make. Amen? So give your lives to him. And Jesus brings back the focus on prayer in the last couple verses because that's where everything always must start. Because anything else, we're doing anything in our own power, and that's just not what it's all about. It's bringing in God's power into our lives and into the ministry. And everything makes sense. The fig tree and the mountain you could throw into the sea, that would remind them, And it should remind us, too, that prayer helps us overcome any obstacle. That is good news. So start with prayer. And then bear fruit for Jesus. Whatever that obstacle is that you're facing right now. So this is the Jesus that we have come to know, and that we need to make known. Because the world needs to hear about him. Not some false Jesus, and there's way too many false Jesuses out there. You say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm worshiping Jesus, but I think Jesus X, Y, Z would be like this or believe this. No, we need to worship and follow and proclaim the Jesus that the Father sent into the world, and here's where we learn him. Not some other Jesus. Fathers out there, fathers, grandfathers, and church fathers, you lead the way, and this church family will be. In good hands, so that everyone follows Christ. That leads us to our next steps, which I've just summarized. Call on Jesus in faith and share my faith personally and with the church family. If you have not called on Jesus for salvation, He has done the work on the cross already. We'll keep proclaiming Him, the real Jesus, is the one you want to know and give your life to. So call on Jesus in faith, He will save you. Call on Jesus in faith. Now, if, once you're saved and give the rest of your life to him, every moment, every moment, sharing your faith, too, personally in your own time and, and then with the church family. And we have lots of things coming up, and we'll talk about those again in a little while. But right now, we're going to pray, and then we're going to transition into our observance together of the communion elements, the bread and the cup. We do this monthly as a church family, as Jesus has blessed, blessedly commanded us to do. It's his command, but it's to our blessing. Let me pray right now, and then the men will come and pass the elements down the rows. I'll give instructions.